0: Hello and welcome to this special edition of Babbage, which is part of our Open Future initiative that's championing the cause of liberalism in the 21st century. I'm Kenneth Kukier, The Economist senior editor. Last week, we looked at the vast data trail that people leave behind as they go about their daily lives and what is done with that information. This week, we turn our attention to another facet of big data and artificial intelligence, the algorithms that are used to process all that information. Once the data is collected, mathematical formulas are analyzing it to make judgments about you as a person. And these judgments can have a huge impact on your life. They'll save your life by routing ambulances to you faster or diagnosing medical illnesses that you might not otherwise spot, but they'll also be used to determine things like whether you make it past the first stack of job applications when you apply for a job or whether you're released early from jail on parole if you're in jail. So how do these algorithms work? Can we trust that they'll be fair? And how do we challenge them if we don't agree with their decisions?
3: It is fundamentally difficult, or in some cases impossible, to fully understand what complex software will do.
2: This is an algorithm designed to predict future criminality being used in the adjudication of justice on a current crime, right? And so that you don't have to jump too far in your mind to get to the movie Minority Report and wonder whether judging people at all on future criminality is something we should be doing.
1: And maybe what we're saying really is, you know, I don't want you to understand it because if you did, then you might regulate it.
0: To tell us more about the increasing use of algorithms in our daily lives and to explain the potential for error, I'm joined by Julia Angwin. Julia is a pioneering investigative journalist for ProPublica and the author of Dragnet Nation, a quest for privacy, security, and freedom in a world of relentless surveillance. It's great to have you on the show, Julia Engwin. Hello.
2: Hello. It's so great to be here.
0: So, Julia, my first question for our listeners that might not be so familiar with algorithms, can you please explain what is an algorithm and how does it
2: work? That's a great question. Um, Yeah, algorithms have sort of mystery around them, but I always think of them as a recipe. So it's just a set of instructions for completing a task. And oftentimes those instructions, we really mean algorithm when we talk about it in the context of giving instructions to a computer. But truthfully, there can be algorithms that are not computerized as well.
0: Can you give me an example of where algorithms are everywhere, but sort of in the background doing things and what are they doing?
2: Algorithms help sort through things. So, for instance, it's helpful to have somebody tell you the route on a map. You know, similarly, the Facebook news feed is probably the best known algorithm, right? It ranks the post based on what they think you might want to read, not based on chronology or how much you like your friends or anything like that. And the workings of that ranking are mysterious. And so people spend a lot of time thinking about why did they see this one post but not another one by their friends? And also people encounter these algorithms in their daily life just through like a credit score that's assigned to them um, about whether they're going to qualify for a loan. And people have encountered hiring algorithms. So when you apply for a job, the people accepting resumes often have some sort of technology that automatically sorts through these resumes and decides which ones they're going to look at.
0: Now you've been a pioneering journalist looking at the dark side of the algorithm, some of the problems with them as they're implemented. Tell me about what those problems are.
2: I think one of our biggest findings was about this algorithm for criminal risk scores, which basically assigns a score to every person who's arrested in a jurisdiction in Florida. And this software is used across the United States. And these people are given different amounts of bail or pretrial release time based partly on how risky they're likely to to be based on this algorithm. And the algorithm really attempts to predict if they're going to commit a future crime within the next two years. So we actually went and obtained all the data, about 18,000 people who were scored on this algorithm. And then we looked at whether they went on to commit a future crime during the next two years. And we also looked at their criminal histories and sort of controlling for criminal history. If you took a white and a black defendant basically who had similar backgrounds and similar outcomes, meaning whether they went on to commit a crime or not, we found that the black defendants were 45% more likely to get a higher risk score. So in other words, this algorithm was really biased against black defendants. It gave them higher scores, even when they had the same circumstances as a white defendant. And so that's a problem with algorithms is that they can be biased, and the bias is embedded in a way that's very hard to see.
0: So what was the response of the authorities when you brought up the fact that the algorithm was biased. I presume they completely changed their procurement policy and awarded you some sort of medal.
2: I know, that did not happen, but I wish that had happened. Um, (laughs) What happened when we came up with this finding was that there's been about a two-year debate about what is the meaning of fairness in an algorithm. But the problem is you can look at it in all these different ways, which is the bias and the error rates or the predictive value. And so this is a debate that's been playing out in the academic community about, like, well, what are the ways we want to rate algorithms for fairness? And I think that's a really important debate because if we're going to have oversight over algorithms, we have to decide what we think is the definition of fairness.
0: So it seems like there's also a due process interest here, that the criminal who feels that they have been wrongly treated by the algorithm should be able to knock on the door of the judicial authority and request access to it so their defense counsel and experts can look at it to see, in fact, if they think it was fair too. What happened?
2: So this algorithm is not available for inspection, it's a closed source trade secret, the company doesn't disclose the algorithm. And so you're right, there is a big due process issue. In fact, I think it's even if the algorithm was available, it does seem like a sort of a weird courtroom fight to say okay, here's my math on how I'm a four risk, and here's my math on how I'm a seven risk, right? Like, I don't know that judges and courtrooms are designed for those types of mathematical disputes. And so let's say even if the algorithm was transparent, I do wonder how would you build due process into that? And I think there's also just a philosophical due process issue, which is this is an algorithm designed to predict future criminality being used in the adjudication of justice on a current crime, right? And so you don't have to jump too far in your mind to get to the movie Minority Report and wonder whether judging people at all on future criminality is something we should be doing.
0: So what would you like to see happen in society? How should we as humans and as institutions interact with algorithms to see that the public interest is preserved?
2: Well, I think the most important thing is just auditing, right? We need to know what algorithms do in order to even understand what they might need to be regulated or not. I mean, one of the basic problems we have is that we don't really know. Until I analyzed this criminal risk score, nobody knew that it had these bias in the error rates. And now there's a big debate about it. But how many other algorithms are out there that have similar types of biases embedded that just haven't been analyzed? And so I'm a real believer that until you really truly diagnose a problem, you can't solve it. So I think it's a little early to have like, you know, broad solutions. And it's more important to sort of focus on how can we get better at diagnosing these problems.
0: Thanks, Julia. So how do we make algorithms more transparent? James Vaca is a former New York City Councilman in the Bronx. He was frustrated by the lack of information he was able to get about the use of algorithms driving some of the city's policies. So he sponsored the country's first algorithmic transparency law, and it was passed by Mayor Bill de Blasio in late 2017. So my first question for you is, the algorithmic society seems like it portends a lot of great benefits What's the problem?
4: The problem is the citizens don't get the transparency and the accountability.
0: Can you give some examples of algorithms coming up with decisions that seem unfair?
4: I've brought up uh, many issues here in New York City that really require further explanation. If you're a parent and your son or daughter applies to a high school, they often don't get their first choice. But what data went into the algorithm that determined where your son or daughter would go. I also cited another case about police manpower. And my community always felt that we were shortchanged when it came to police manpower. And whenever I went to the police department, I said to them, how do I get more police? I think you've under-manpowered my district. And they would say, well, we go by crime no, no, I want to know what formula do you use to determine the allocation of police manpower? And I could not get an answer. There has to be a formula. There has to be data which the police department enters into a computer system that creates algorithms that determines police manpower. I want to know what that is. Because how can we as citizens fight what we think is and injustice unless we know the formula that's used to determine policy. So what you're saying is that
0: these issues predated computers or certainly predated artificial intelligence algorithms because these are long-standing problems of transparency and government
4: accountability. There are long-standing problems, but now in the age of technology, they're becoming even more important. Technology has created greater layers of inadequate transparency all along the way. So how would your bill remedy some of these problems that you've identified? Well, my bill creates a mandated mayoral task force of uh, agencies on how we are going to make the algorithms more transparent and accountable. My intent is to have algorithms become more explainable. I think that that's going to be a work in progress and That's why this task force is so important, and that's why the council having oversight during the process is very important. Not waiting until a report comes out, no. This is something that I'm going to be keeping vigilant on myself.
0: Thank you very much. While making algorithms transparent seems like a logical first step in trying to address some of the issues that have been raised when using them, it's not as easy as it sounds. To find out more about why it can be hard to understand algorithms, we spoke to Edward Felton. Ed is a professor of computer science at Princeton University, and he was also the deputy U.S. chief technology officer in the Obama administration. Ed, it's great to have you.
3: It's great to be here.
0: Why do you think algorithms come in for so much criticism? What are some of the difficulties in using them?
3: algorithms, when they're done by computers, can be much more complex than anything that a person could do. And that complexity can lead to trouble. It can lead to wrong results. It can lead to types of errors that are unpredictable and unexpected. And it can make it more difficult for people to understand what's going on.
0: Why is it so difficult to get the understanding from the algorithm? Why does the complexity prevent us?
3: Well, there are a few reasons. One is sometimes it's the case that Uh, There's some party who has information that uh, is unwilling to give it to us. There might be a trade secret or something else that that comes in. A company might not want to reveal everything about how their product works. But also there's something inherent in the complexity of modern software. Because software is a purely abstract thing, that it exists only in a sort of virtual sense – It's possible to make it extraordinarily complex. And so there's this kind of natural tendency to make things more complicated and to keep doing that until we get to the edge of human understanding. And when I say the edge of human understanding, I mean the edge of human understanding for people who are deeply expert in the subject matter and have access to everything about how some system works. Even when even they get to the edge of their understanding and they don't fully understand how something works, but they understand it, they think well enough to manage it most of the time. That's a situation we're in a lot of the time with modern technology. There's something irreducibly complex about computer software. And that's true in practice. And there's also deep results in theoretical computer science that say that it is fundamentally difficult or in some cases impossible to fully understand what complex software will do.
0: So, Ed, let me ask a strange question. Is that a problem?
3: It it is. And, And we see it manifest in a bunch of ways. If you think about everyone's experiences with ordinary computers and artifacts, there's a kind of difficulty in getting things to work the first time that seems to be inherent in our experience of technology. And that is one manifestation of this complexity. And I'm talking about things like You know, how do we get our computer to talk to some printer or how do we get onto the Wi-Fi in an unfamiliar place? So even these things, which are sort of everyday bread and butter kind of activities, are less reliable and harder to understand than we would like. And one of the reasons is that that's a manifestation of a deep deep complexity. And if we lose our understanding of the world around us and we lose some degree of control, That becomes an issue. And it also becomes an issue when we take a system that we have learned by hard experience over the decades or centuries how to govern and then replace it with something that's more technological.
0: Let me press you on this a little bit because if we can validate that this complex, too-hard-to-know algorithm performs better at the task that we want it to do than all the other approaches that are explainable – Wouldn't we be a little bit crazy not to use it and get that in performance enhancement and give up our great love for explainability?
3: I think there is a strong argument to that effect. But there is, I think, deeper concerns that arise from a lack of explainability or a lack of predictability or governability, uh, especially for systems that are playing important public roles where explainability or justification for actions are important. If we switch to automated approaches to making some of these decisions, and we no longer are given a justification for a particular decision, but all we're given is assurance that on average, a system will yield a good result, that might not be satisfactory. We might be ethically or politically unwilling to accept decisions that can only be explained in the aggregate.
0: Ed Felton, thank you very much.
3: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: So if algorithms are making decisions that directly affect our lives, but they're too complex for us to understand, how are we going to fix this? Or if we can't fix it, how are we going to live with this? I spoke to Sean Gorley. He is the founder of Primer.ai. We discussed how to deal with algorithms that can't explain what they do. Part of the reason we haven't
1: had um, a lot of explainability is because people haven't really been working on it.
0: What happens if we don't get explainability? Should that be a showstopper for AI in certain areas like healthcare? Or policing.
1: I I think one of the ones we're going to see straight away is is in cars, right? And so, and I was just up in Estonia and talking with their uh, CIO there. You know, they're wrestling with this at the moment of of uploading algorithms that are behind self driving cars and making them kind of uh, explainable and accountable. What happens? You know, your your car crashes and there was an algorithm that was driving it. You know, if it can't explain the decisions that it made, how do you deal with that as a government? So you you get a a spate of crashes on 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 a car. And then the public says, this is not acceptable. And then, you know, the algorithm behind the car says, well, I can't explain myself, but you should keep trusting me, right? So I I think when we look at kind of like the integration of algorithms into kind of important facets of our lives, if things go wrong, the I can't tell you why things went wrong is not really an answer. But it's a difficult task because... You know, you think about kind of uploading algorithms, requiring explainability, and all of a sudden you slow down the development massively, um, and you put all sorts of constraints that may otherwise limit a safer driving car.
0: And so what's the mental shift that people need to make when they realize that you're always worried about explainability, but you have to give it up and give it on faith? You're worried about privacy— You have to give it up. The algorithm is going to do things to you. You're worried about biases. You have to accept the fact that the engineers are going to try to get rid of those biases, but they'll never be perfect. Everywhere you look in the future, algorithms are going to be woven through absolutely everything that happens to you. Are people going to be okay with that? And if they're not, what do they need to do to arm themselves mentally?
1: So algorithms will be woven through everything that you do. And AI will be kind of a fabric of life as much as power and the expectation that you plug your phone into the the socket it charges. AI will be there, but power is incredibly regulated. When something becomes that important in society, we collectively step up and say, given the importance of this, how do we want it to behave? And that hasn't happened in AI. So I think, you know, as a society, we get a chance to sit down and talk and think very deeply about how we want this to be. Now, what, what does that mean? It, it means that we may require a degree of explainability. We may require accountability to say, look, if you're going to use an algorithm here, it has to be uploaded in this place, and it has to be coupled with any training data that's been given. Not that anyone's going to look at it, but if something that goes wrong, we need to kind of have a trail that we can look backwards on. If you're going to build an algorithm, you have to prove to us that doesn't have bias in regards to racial, sexual, religious preferences, right? So you have to prove that, right? So we can think of all sorts of ways to regulate this stuff. And we should, both from a monetary through to a kind of a societal bias, through to kind of, you know, looking at catastrophes that emerge from it. And that hasn't happened amongst any of us. At the moment, we build these AIs and we say, look, don't you, you can't regulate this because you can't understand it. And maybe what we're saying really is, you know, I don't want you to understand it because if you did, then you might regulate it. And so I, I think a lot of the stuff, whether it's naivety or a willful kind of ignorance, we haven't wanted to touch regulation. But when I think about algorithms and humans, like I think regulation is the bridge that gives us a, a space to think about how we want this world to be. Now, it doesn't mean we'll get it perfect, but we sure as hell should have that conversation. Sean, that's incredible. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you.
0: In last week's podcast, we looked at data in all of its forms. In this week's podcast, we looked at the algorithms involved in artificial intelligence and big data and how we use all that information around us. While we may not fully understand how algorithms reach their conclusions, that shouldn't mean that we don't apply them if we can show that they perform better than other techniques, be it the decisions of people or other statistical approaches. After all, we have always applied advanced methods with incomplete understanding, be it how medicines like aspirin work to the nature of quantum computing. What is clear is that artificial intelligence and big data will affect how we work, live, and think. It will lead to great benefits, but we need to be aware of the risks. Let us know what you think about Open Future and our podcast on Babbage. If you have any comments, we'd love to hear from you. Contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio, or email us at radio at economist.com. And if you enjoy our journalism, consider taking out a subscription to The Economist. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. Thank you for joining us.